1: he got up, walked to the front door, and before he got there, the door was kicked in, and he was shot at point-blank range and died.
0: Welcome to Motive and Method. I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet.
1: And I'm Tim Watson-Monroe.
0: On last week's episode, uh, we spoke to Madison McGee about the death of her father and the impact that's had on her over the years. She only fairly recently found out that unlike the story she was told when she was young, that he had died of natural causes, he had in fact been murdered. So she's been on a, a huge journey since then psychologically and now investigatively to find out what happened to him. Today, Tim and I are going to break that down further and look at some of the psychological impacts of crimes on families and unsolved crimes and how people can deal with those. So that's the plan for today's episode. So Tim, I think this is really much, very much in your domain in terms of understanding the psychology behind how people respond to violent crime in terms of the families, those left behind. So I wanted to ask you, you know, your thoughts on those responses of murder victims, because I've worked a lot with victims of violent crimes and those who have survived as well. And it's, often the not knowing that's what the families always say to me not knowing what happened or who is responsible and the or why, why the why the why is the big one why did something happen why was their loved one targeted the why that's what it comes down to even more than retribution you know they're not necessarily wanting somebody to you know pay the price for whatever crime they've committed they just want to know why and who was responsible and it's those huge lingering questions that really dominate psychologically and I think cause a lot of ongoing trauma.
1: Well, it's interesting, that point. Um, There was a lot of research done on sudden loss, comparing people who lost family members through natural disasters. For example, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes erupting and so on, so-called acts of God. And those people tend to fare better than those that have lost uh, family members through deliberate acts of others, such as murder, people driving in cars into their children and so on. And I think the reason behind it is this, that with acts of God, it's beyond your control. There's an inevitability to it. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Your loved one dies. You go through the normal grieving process, which can go on, you know, forever. But it's quite different to a situation where somebody is either targeted for a murder or who's been the victim of a crime. Take, for example, the, the Lint uh, siege, you know, in Sydney some years ago, where two people died. Monis was the uh, the offender, a well-known lunatic around Sydney. And I've not examined the people who survived that tragedy and I've certainly not spoken to the loved ones, but I've spoken to a lot of people who worked in that vicinity because I do a lot of work with barristers. They're not even family members and they were greatly affected because they could have been in that situation. They could have been the one who was getting coffee at that time of day. So I think it's about trying to have some control of the narrative. And so an act of God, you have no real control over it where a family member has been murdered, inevitably you're going to ask, well, why were they there? Why were they targeted? What was the motivation behind this? And even if an offender's caught, that dynamic prevails. When you have an unsolved murder, such as in this case, inevitably it's going to be a big driver behind the individual's desire to find out the whys and wherefores surrounding the crime.
0: Do you think it comes down to blame as well? A lot of the families I work with, you know, there's a lot of self-blame. You know, if only I had done this, if only I stopped them going out on their own, if only I'd been in the car, that may not have happened. You know, people take that on. But I think when, when a crime isn't solved, it, that is it worse because they don't have anyone else. There's no named person that they can actually attribute that loss to. So they can take it on more themselves. Would you say that's true? I think
1: that's true, and there's nobody to hate. It could be anyone. Is it somebody I know? Is it somebody in the broader community who's anonymous? And they're left perpetually wondering who it may have been and what was the driver behind it. So it's much worse for people where there's no offender detected, and it remains a cold case, so-called.
0: Yeah and I've spoken to families as well about this this term that we call ambiguous loss and this is this is something that often happens when there's a murder case and there's no body for example or so you know an assumed murder where no body has been recovered and long term missing persons cases and that that loss of always remaining hopeful and yet never having answers and that's significantly traumatic too. It again comes down to why did it happen, how did it happen, and that constant waiting for news that may never come.
1: They become hypervigilant. Um, that process you described as survivor guilt, why them, not me? What could I have done to recognise this was a possibility? What could I have done to intervene to make sure it didn't happen and so on? And I can say from examining a lot of people over the years who have been in this situation, the symptoms never really abate. They fluctuate in their intensity, but they're always there, almost daily.
0: And Madison's case is a little different in that she obviously knew her father had died. She heard that when she was six years old, but she she was told that he died of natural causes. But do you think she is suffering, or you know, people in that situation, broadening it out slightly, suffer from that kind of loss that? that not knowing, that not understanding, is that what drives people to investigate things for themselves, for example?
1: I thought she was a very impressive individual. She's articulate, highly intelligent. She was deceived about the death of her father and we didn't examine her and that's not our purpose here, but she acknowledged that she was deceived and it had a big impact upon her when the truth of the matter was ultimately revealed. And no doubt that's been a strong motivator for her now to pursue truth and justice. And she's doing this in a a number of ways, including what I would describe as an excellent podcast.
0: And she was told when she was 16, actually, that he hadn't died of natural causes, that he'd been shot. So that must have been a huge revelation for her. And you look at Why the family would have chosen to withhold such a significant piece of information from her. But imagining being her mother, something that traumatic has happened to her father. It must have been a really difficult choice to know what was best. What do you do in that situation for children? Because you want to protect them from the trauma, yet obviously their father's gone. So the balance of trying to trying to ease that journey for them, must be incredibly difficult to navigate.
1: Extremely difficult, and I feel for the mother too. She was put in a very, very troubling situation. But at some point, you know, people are entitled to know the truth, particularly if it's your father who's shot dead. She found out at the age of 16. She's at an age then when she can, I guess, conceptualise the issues. The problem is with little children that they think in concrete terms and they don't comprehend what it's all about. And uh, telling them at a young age, your dad's just been shot, I think could be, as you point out, very traumatising for that child. But ultimately, people have the right to know.
0: But 16 is also a very formative age when you're kind of developing your own identity and sense of self and autonomy. So... I can imagine learning something like that that is so you know significant in your life would have been a particularly that's a particularly challenging time potentially to to find that out.
1: I think in general principles it is. She seems to have managed it pretty well and negotiated it pretty well. It's obviously energised her. Um, she wants to know the truth, and I think she'll find the truth.
0: I'm finding it fascinating how she is navigating that healing journey. So through the work that we do with the Justice Clinic at the University of Newcastle, you know, the victims' families that we work with tell us they need very different things. Some of them need the support of a network of others who have been through something similar because regardless of how much you can sympathise with somebody, you can never truly empathise because we cannot put ourselves in the shoes of a person who's lost somebody through murder unless you've experienced it. So some of the families really need that, that understanding from others, whereas other families can find that a little bit suffocating in some circumstances. So they need other things. And clearly, Madison is finding a particularly unique way to manage her journey and to move forward. And it seems a very positive way to do that.
1: Well, she has the ability to do it. And it's quite true. Support groups can be very beneficial to people, not only in this context, but in bereavement. Uh, I know of support groups where people get together when there's a, they've lost a dog because the dog's considered to be part of the family.
0: My dog's part of my family.
1: Yeah, well, mine were too. They sadly died recently. But um, the point is it's not one shoe fits all. And other people can find sitting in a group re their trauma and hearing about the grief and trauma of others can actually trigger further symptoms for them. So I don't think there's any hard and fast rules about this. Some people benefit from counselling. Some people sit on their emotions for years and they can have, you know, features of post traumatic stress disorder vicariously so. Uh, they can have depression, unresolved grief, survivor guilt, all the rest of it. I think debriefing can often help for some, but not always for everyone. So everyone's unique, aren't they?
0: So this is really about finding your own personal way to work through it because as you're saying it's not going to work for everyone and we all have different emotional and psychological needs and therefore you know sometimes groups help but obviously in Madison's case doing a very public investigation where she's looking for justice for her father and answers for her father is the way that she's she's working through it for her
1: well, that's, that's quite right. And, you know, we, we now have, and it's very pleasing to see the development of these victim support groups, uh, Victim of Crime Assistance League, organisations such as these where people do have an avenue they can approach if they feel the need to do so. But, you know, clinically often people are the last to recognise that they have a problem. It, it may be significant others in their lives who notice a change in their attitude, a change in their emotional state, and as we've discussed in relation to other issues in this series, um, there, there's probably a time for some people to tap those individuals on the shoulder and say, look, you don't seem to be coping terribly well. Have you considered the following? And then the decision, of course, is up to that individual. But in Madison's case, look, I think with her learning about it when she did it at that time in her life... Um, she was sufficiently empowered as an individual to then start asking more questions. I mean, the interesting thing I found with the interview with her was um, the obfuscation from the police department, allegedly, and it's not the first time, is it, we've encountered in terms of the work we've done, that police often lose interest, it becomes a cold case, it becomes a frozen case, and despite her agitation and so on, she still hasn't got the cooperation she was looking for, So she stepped outside of that paradigm. She's creating a new one to raise public awareness and I guess shake the tree a little to try and get some answers.
0: But it really speaks to her psychological resilience too, doesn't it? And we've seen this with other cases we've looked at for this podcast. The resilience of people who keep fighting for justice, that could be for their father, as in Madison's case, um, doing the podcast. It could be Helen Cummings, who wanted to write the book about the second family that was murdered by her ex-husband. You know, they're all stories of resilience and battling through the odds, aren't they? Taking different forms, but expressions of trauma kind of turned around to a positive outcome.
1: In those cases, yes. But, you know, for every one of those cases, there's a lot of people who lack that resilience, lack the resources, become overwhelmed with grief and anxiety and guilt, and it's life-changing for them, and their lives shrivel up as a consequence.
0: And we are seeing this proliferation of new forms of media, aren't we? Podcasts, social media, and these are giving people the opportunity to express and work through their trauma in a different way, but it's a much more public way. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Because I can see kind of a bit of a double-edged sword here in all these kind of expressions of trauma and the impact they may have not only on the listeners but also on the families. I wonder about Madison's family and how they feel about this very public expression.
1: Well, I agree with that. I think it can be cathartic at the time. But as we've often said, once in cyberspace, forever in cyberspace, What do the progeny think about it in years to come? Does it trigger emotional reactions in other family members and so on? I guess it again has to be dealt with on a case-by-case example. Uh, The other problem, of course, is trolling. People are not always sympathetic to these individuals and they may put their story out there on social media and get a barrage of abuse and condemnation for doing it. Because there are innately cruel people out in cyberspace who will pick on uh, the vulnerable.
0: Yeah, and they are absolutely, they do go for you. I mean, I was trolled quite significantly. Every time I would speak about Kathleen Volbig in the media until very recently, there was a group that would endlessly troll me on social media and email me. And as soon as you stick your head above that parapet, you're a target for, for those kind of online people who, you know, the keyboard warriors. Hmm. So I imagine, you know, putting your story out there, there would be a lot of people in Madison's life who ne- don't necessarily want this story told for a number of reasons. And so you can see that she could put herself in some harm, even if it's the kind of psychological harm of, you know, people disagreeing, people challenging, people wanting to silence her. Or
1: even potential danger. Um... The offender's still out there assuming that he or she or they are still alive. Uh, they would not welcome this type of public attention and so she's potentially in danger by doing this.
0: It's a very brave thing to do then, isn't it? She obviously feels the need to do this. It's part of her healing journey but really she's compelled because she wants answers for her father and that's where her strength is and And I think the podcast is, is going to be a fascinating expression of that And incredibly interesting to hear, you know, from her perspective. But I do wonder, when is enough enough? When do families or loved ones feel that they've done enough to let that go? And what if they can't let it go?
1: Well, I'm not sure, and I don't want to speak about her psychological state, but in general terms, I'm not sure that this process necessarily brings closure It can aggravate the symptoms in some way. For example, you learn that the person that killed your father was his best friend. Uh, You learn that it's a crime that was meant uh, for a different target and so on. Does that give you closure or does it actually trigger more of the issues that we've talked about? Perseveration, wondering about the whys and wherefores about it, the survivor guilt and so on. So um, as you say, it's a two-edged sword. But I think in her case, she's very courageous. It's a fabulous, the episode I listened to is fantastic. It's compelling. And I hope for her it brings some answers and some closure.
0: Yeah, I do as well, because I've worked with a few families at the justice clinic. And I have wondered that myself, like these families really do want justice for their loved ones. They want answers. And sadly, some of them we can't help because the information just isn't there. And that does feel like a burden when you have to say, no, there's there's actually nothing we can do. We haven't got enough information to help you move this forward. Others we have worked with for very protracted periods of time, long periods of time, years in some cases. And and I worry that when, when the situation is concluded, when we've been to the coroner's inquest, that will that still be enough when they have got those answers? Because it's been their world for so long that how do you let something... Go, you know, and so that—that that is a fear that I have. Not, I'm not speaking about Madison specifically. Just more generally, when you have been through something traumatic like that, and it becomes everything is about answering it. Your whole world, your, all your attention is focused on that one thing. And when can you let that go?
1: And you raise another very good point. You find the offender. The offender, if he's alive, goes to jail. That leaves a big vacuum in your life. Uh, if this has been the sole purpose each day to find out what's going on, to understand it better, once you get as many answers as you can possibly get, what happens next?
0: Exactly. What happens next? When is your is your journey over? I don't know that it, it necessarily is because no family that I've ever spoken to uses the word closure. You know, they may get some resolution is a word that some families will use, but never closure because it's never closed, it's never over because you can never get that loved one back, which is ultimately what they all want.
1: It's an irretrievable loss. Yes. And even when the offender is detected and they go to jail, um, I've spoken to many uh, families who've survived these traumas, it doesn't change one little thing. It doesn't give them any satisfaction. Uh, Some of them are happy that the person's gone to jail for 20 years to life. They think that they're getting an apt punishment. Some say they should be executed, but it never gives them any real satisfaction because at the end of the day, getting back to the earlier point, what's next, it just leaves this... Void. uh, It's a void. It's a vacuum that can never be filled.
0: I didn't realise when I started working in this space how many families there are out there that need help. I mean, every week I'm getting somebody contact me. Literally in the last couple of weeks, I've been away, as you know, and the last couple of weeks... i have got
1: an English suntan.
0: (laughs) Oh, so I'm looking extremely pale
1: today, clearly.
0: (laughs) Literally in the past two weeks while I've been away, I've had two different family members come to me. One of the cases is a very high-profile Australian case, currently unsolved, and they're still looking for answers all these years later, and they want us to potentially look at that case with them and they've got a new person of interest that's come to the fore through their ongoing investigation. I'm talking decades ago, decades, and yet they're still looking for answers in that case. And you wouldn't ever give up, would you? But you know, it shocked me how many people do contact me regularly looking for somewhere to go, someone that will help them get the answers that they're seeking. And where do they go if they can't get them from the police? And obviously Madison felt she wasn't getting them from the police. You know, you know, we can only help at the Justice Clinic. We can only help a certain number. You know, what about all the others out there? What do they do to help themselves psychologically to get over this trauma?
1: Well, they suffer or they um, develop a whole range of behaviours and symptoms reflective of PTSD Some resort to alcohol abuse. Some use drugs. I mean, I don't think you can overstate in general principles the impact that this type of crime has on the survivors. It is never-ending. It's highly traumatic and the symptoms invariably are tense and intense.
0: And I think this also raises the interesting point about citizen journalists and their place now in the criminal justice system and the impact that they're having because obviously people now have a public outlet for situations that they don't think have been managed well so using Madison's case as an example she doesn't believe it was fully investigated correctly you know all those years ago so she now has a way of using the podcast and the media to put pressure on the police to get the answers and this is certainly not the first time that we've seen this look at Headley Thomas's podcast looking at Chris Dawson and the disappearance of Lynette Dawson you know that Certainly, I wouldn't necessarily put pressure on the police who were already investigating in that case, but it certainly put pressure on the DPP to, to charge prosecute, Chris Dawson. Prosecute the case. Absolutely. They rejected two briefs of evidence previous to that. Now there's all this public pressure. It would have been very hard for them to reject the third brief of evidence that had been submitted by the police. So it certainly leverages pressure on the police when people don't get answers. So do you think that's a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is this rise of the, you know, this very public...
1: Well, I'd say two is- things. That's, that's an example of where it's had a successful outcome in terms of the offender going to prison. But I wonder in Madison's case, what if there is never any answer to this? What if despite, you know, the podcast series and people coming forward and the police being nudged along, There's still no answer and you've got to wonder then how that will impact upon her.
0: Because she's shaking a hornet's nest here, isn't she?
1: Totally. Absolute hornet's nest. Um, I hope she gets resolution. She's a very likeable person and the crime was despicable. But, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we can't overstate either the power of social media now. Um, But, again, it can be a two-edged sword. Uh. It it can lead to... I mean, look, the number of people, and I'm sure it happens with you too, that write me letters quite regularly about their theory of certain crimes and who the offender is. All the
0: time. And so,
1: you know, I just look at them now. I say the police have investigated this. They've done a good job on it. Um, Who knows? Uh, But there's still a lot of active armchair detectives out there that want to put their bit in without knowing all the facts, it's dangerous.
0: Exactly, and I was going to say that can have the opposite effect and we've seen a couple of high-profile cases recently where there's been a lot of talk in the media, social media, a lot of accusations um, and it can certainly go the other way and, you know, cases fall over on the outcome of, you know, some of these social media posts and things that are swirling around out there. So it's a dangerous place, but I think a, it takes certain bravery that Madison has displayed to to really tackle this in such a public way to get answers that she didn't feel she could get another way and, and help herself get those resolutions that she obviously needs.
1: Well, when we spoke to her, she was in Cannes in France at the film festival there. And she's obviously getting traction. She's obviously getting, I would hope, a degree of international interest. She's got our interest. And I, I hope that um, her series is a great success. And I hope for her at a personal level that it brings some closure and partial resolution to this. Uh, because let's, let's remember it was her father who was murdered.
0: So that was our episode on Madison's case of looking at the death of her father. And I think it was certainly an interesting one, Tim, psychologically looking at the way trauma can be expressed and how people can navigate their healing journey through different mechanisms.
1: Well, I agree. And it's a great podcast. She's very courageous. I hope she gets closure on this. But she's certainly shaken the tree and. Of- a hornet's nest, as you described it, because uh, it may bring a lot of good and potential closure for her. But I can't for a moment imagine that everyone in the uh, community over there is happy about what she's doing. So great courage to move forward with it in the way that she is.
0: Yeah, and I will certainly be listening to the rest of the podcast because obviously it's unfolding for her. She's still recording it. We still don't know what the end is going to be. So I've got my
1: suspicions. Yeah, well, so have (laughs) I.
0: But um, I'm certainly going to be listening to the rest of her podcast because I think it will be really interesting to hear what her conclusions are, what the outcomes are for her, and also, as we were speaking about in this episode, how she feels at the end of that journey and whether she does feel she's had that she's reached that conclusion that she needed and i think that's going to be really interesting psychologically to watch her so that's the end of this episode i hope you've enjoyed listening and if you want to hear more from us we will be releasing another one next week thank you
1: thank you for listening
0: thank you for listening to motive and method And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available.
1: I'm Tim Watson-Monroe.
0: And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallett, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.